Hey, Kingdom Roots community. Before we jumped into the episode today, I wanted to remind you of that competition going on where all you have to do is tweet or uh, post on Facebook with the hashtag Kingdom Roots, your favorite line from either the episode that we did last week or wanted to let you know we're extending that to this week as well um, because today we have another episode about Adam and the genome this time with Dennis Venema the other author of the book so I wanted to remind you to do that in the next couple of days we're going to end that competition on February 1st when we do the drawing so um, get your social media posts on before then and we'd love to hear what you think so without further ado here's the episode. podcast with Scott McKnight, the conversation designed to look at how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. Today for an episode, we have the second part of our Adam and the Genome series, uh, where Scott actually has a conversation with the other author of the book, Dennis Venema. Dennis uh, Venema is um, a friend of mine uh, who is a professor of science in the field of the sciences at uh, Trinity Western University in Langley, British Columbia. And he is a genome specialist. And I, I want to say a little bit about how I discovered Dennis or how discovered how Dennis discovered me. And that is there was a, a set of articles published in um, a journal and they were on the Bible and science and genome uh, uh, science, and they were there were a couple good ones on the Old Testament. One by John Collins uh, from St. Louis, and one by Dan Harlow at Calvin uh, in Grand Rapids. And then there was this piece by Dennis Venema, and I'm uh, I like science, but I'm not a scientist. But I read the the piece really carefully, and it was so compelling. And um, I had to go back and work on meanings of terms. But it just was convincing to me about genomic theory and its implication for uh, the origins of human life and for the DNA that currently exists in human beings throughout the world. Uh, So I was interested. And then at a BioLogos meeting, Dennis and I met one another. um, And then... Following that, Dennis invited me to participate with him in a project that would uh, try to help Christians understand the significance of genome theory uh, and the Bible. And so we kind of developed this project uh, all at the um, leadership of Dennis on how, um, how, how, we, how we read and think about Adam and Eve after thinking about the genome project. So that's a bit of an introduction to Dennis, and I'd like Dennis to clarify anything on that, and then I have a couple questions for him about genome theory. Great, thanks, Scott. Although I have to laugh when I hear you talk about that paper from 2010, because that was right when I was starting to get into writing about these topics, and at that time I was not, I didn't know how to write for a non-specialist audience, so the fact that you got anything out of that paper at all is just, remains amazing to me, but maybe you had some help, maybe RJS helped you out, but it it's a testament to your tenacity that you stuck with it and got anything out of that paper. 
You know, uh, and when we started this project, the first thing I did is I took Dennis's article and I spent an entire week rewriting it in a way that I could understand myself. And then I sent it to Dennis and I think you said to me something like, yeah, I think you basically got it. And I thought, (laughs) yeah, yeah, I worked at that pretty hard just to, but it, you know, terms. So, so Dennis, tell, tell our uh, audience and most of my audience would be theologians, pastors, Bible college students, seminary students. Um, Tell me, uh, tell us what genome theory is all about. Well, evolution as a theory has been around for about 150 years since Darwin's time. And since that time, as new technology becomes available, we've been able to test Darwin's basic ideas about organisms sharing common ancestors with other organisms in the past. So as genome science has come online and we've been sequencing genomes, it's been a fantastic opportunity to test Darwin's ideas in a way that he could have never envisioned. You know, I sometimes say to my students, you know, if I could go back in time and tell Darwin that within each organism is something like a textual record of that organism's evolutionary past, and you can use it to compare different species to one another, he would do backflips. He That would be beyond his wildest expectations. So as this new technology has come available to us, we now have full genome sequences for a whole number of different organisms, humans, chimpanzees, gorillas, all the model organisms like mice and fruit flies and zebrafish and things like that. So it gives us this amazing basis for comparing organisms and for looking at their relatedness to one another. So as this new information is coming available to Christians and to students in the sciences, the idea that humans share common ancestry with other forms of life, say chimpanzees, gorillas, and so on, that hypothesis has been hugely supported by genomics evidence. There, it's it's no exaggeration, Scott, for me to teach a class, um, say you've, I've got students in my class who are coming, say, from a young earth background or even an old earth anti-evolution background, and they're looking at this evidence as I'm presenting it to them in class, and I can see them having a crisis of faith right then and there, even though I'm trying to do it very pastorally, very gently. So... The evidence is so compelling for people who are able to see it and understand it. And what I try to do in the book is try to make that very accessible so that somebody who's not trained in the sciences, somebody who's not a biologist, can see what a biologist would see when they see this evidence. And the natural response of those students is, okay, well, what am I going to do with the Bible now? And mm-hmm. as a scientist, for me, I can, you know, sort of as an amateur, I can sort of offer some suggestions because I've been part of this conversation for, my, for a while. But when it came to do this book, I really wanted to have somebody with some expertise and preferably somebody with New Testament expertise because we had some fairly good resources available for the Genesis side of the equation, right? So John Walton's got his books out and things like that. Um, and students generally find those very helpful books. But a lot of them were asking, okay, yeah, I can sort of see maybe how to feel my way through the Genesis side of the equation, but then I come up against Paul, and what do I do with Paul? And what do I do with how Paul is using Adam? And isn't the way that Paul is using Adam, doesn't that mean that I have to accept that Adam is 
you know, that Adam and Eve are the sole biological genetic progenitors of everyone on the planet. So I was seeing the conversation shift a bit away from Genesis and a bit towards Adam and Eve and Paul. So I really wanted to have somebody involved in the project who had some expertise in that side of the equation, because that was something I really couldn't speak to. You know, Dennis, that's that's exactly my experience, too. <clears throat> when I speak about this topic, um, people can flex a little bit about Genesis unless they've been really hardened uh, or really convinced. I probably shouldn't use the word hardened. Uh, they might say the same of us. Um, yeah. Unless they've been really convinced that Genesis is the official scientific account and therefore all the scientists are wrong. But I, I've seen quite a bit of flex on Genesis 1 uh, through 2 and 1 and 3, 1 through 11. Um, and John Walton, who's a professor at Wheaton, did not really get in trouble when he came out and said Genesis 1 is not what he calls material ontology, the idea that that uh, these elements, light, sun, whatever, darkness, rain, plants, are, are, are it's not about those things in themselves coming into existence, but he says it's about functional ontology, and by that he means... It's about how these things are designed by God to work in the world that God designed as a temple. Well, a lot of people are thinking, okay, I'm, I'm fine with that. I can somehow take Genesis 1 through 11 and put it into the ancient Near Eastern world and not get too bothered by that. But every conversation that I'm in comes back to what about Romans chapter 5? What about Adam, according to Paul, if Jesus is historical, isn't Paul historical? And Dennis, one of the things I say to them is that I, 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 repeat, I repeat your conclusion, and I say something like this, that uh, scientists today, genome scientists, specialists, many of whom are Christians, some of whom are Christians, will say that the DNA in human beings today could not have come from anything less than about 10,000 hominins. Now, when I say that, I just pray to God that they don't ask me too many questions because I don't know what I'm talking about. But <laughs> I know I know that you can answer that question. What What do we mean when we say that? Well, what we mean by, when we say that is that humans have a lot of genetic diversity. And what we mean by that is at every location in our genome. We could call that a gene, but it doesn't necessarily have to be a gene. It could be any just location on a chromosome. All of us have two copies of every location. So one chromosome we get from mom, one chromosome we get from dad. So that means we can have up to two different versions of any given gene or location in our genome. And geneticists call these things alleles. We can have two alleles up to two alleles of any gene or any location. But as a population, humans have so many alleles or so many versions of these uh, different sequences that it's not possible that we've come from a very small population. So we have this great amount of genetic diversity. And it's actually not just the diversity at any one location in our genome, it's also the patterns of variation that we have. So. Um, along a chromosome, there'll be many such locations with different alleles present, different variants present. 
And it's those combinations. We have so many different combinations in human populations as well that we can see that we come from a substantial population. And that's actually good news for us. If we didn't have that amount of genetic variation, it could be problematic for us as a species. We see some species, other species, that have greatly reduced genetic variation, and it sometimes gets them into trouble. I actually talk about it a bit in the book, where I look at other species and say, hey, if we wanted to see what a species would look like if it descended from a very, very small population, or even one or two individuals, this is what the genome of that species would look like. And when we look at the human genome, we can see that that's not us. We don't come from such a small population. What kind of trouble would people, would these uh, species get into? Well, genetic diversity is kind of the spice of life, I say, because it gives you flexibility if environmental conditions change. So if everything, if everybody in this, in the population is genetically very, very similar, then if environmental conditions change, you might end up in a, in a situation where that your genetic combination isn't good in that new environment. Now, humans, now that we're sort of in the, in the industrial age, we would have, and the technological age, we would have ways of kind of dealing with that issue, I suppose. But other species, say like Tasmanian devils, I talk about it in the book, they're almost all genetically identical, which means they're all similarly susceptible to diseases or to... Um, uh, they're susceptible to a cancer that they have that I talk about in the book. And fortunately, we just don't have those issues. Now, it does make some challenges for us. I mean, um, it takes quite a bit of effort to find a match for tissue donation. Like if you need an organ donor, there's a you have to go through a, a huge process of, of screening to find someone who might be a suitable match. And that speaks to the genetic diversity that we have in okay. our population. So, uh, so if someone w wouldn't say uh, blood transfusions or something like that, that's where this genetic material comes into play. Yeah, fortunately, not for blood transfusions because, okay. but uh, yeah, wouldn't that be challenging if we needed a tissue match for a blood donor? But um, that's because those cells don't have the markers on them that uh, <clears throat> would lead to tissue rejection. But uh, yeah, that variation is generally a very good thing. Um, because it gives a species diversity, and that diversity gives you flexibility um, if environmental conditions change. Uh, Dennis, uh, like like to shift just a little bit. Uh, could you tell us um, your own journey in moving from uh, your conservative Christian uh, past? I think that's fair to say. Yep. In into a more uh, into embracing evolution at, and at the same time maintaining your Christian faith. There's so many uh, science types, students that I've had, um, that have really struggled with this, and they need a story of someone like you. So I wonder if you could just um, give us a little, uh, a little bit about your own journey. Uh, how did, what, did, what did you go through? Uh, what, what were the decisive moments? However you want to frame it. Great, sure. For me, uh, I grew up in northern British Columbia, and I have to say, growing up in Canada probably saves me a little bit, I, I, uh, or saved me a little bit on this topic. I sometimes have American students in my classes, and sometimes they struggle with this a lot more than the Canadian students do, and I just might just be a 
cultural influence that's just not quite the same in Canada. But growing up as an evangelical, I just sort of learned by osmosis that evolution is wrong and that evolution is something that atheist scientists kind of thought up without any evidence for it so that they would have a way to explain how things were created because they didn't want to acknowledge that God was the creator. And this was just sort of what I picked up from osmosis in my Christian circles. And I actually wanted, I talk about this in the book, I wanted to be a scientist from an early age, but as I got older and went through high school and whatnot, it just sort of seemed like a pipe dream, like who becomes a scientist? No, I don't know anybody who's a scientist. Uh, but I was still interested in in science, but I thought, okay, maybe what I can do, I had spent some short-term, some time on short-term mission trips, and I wanted to do something that was going to, you know, have an impact for the kingdom. And I thought, well, you know, maybe if I'm a doctor, then I could be a, like a medical missionary or something like that. So I had good grades in high school. So off I went to UBC, which is our sort of local state school here in British Columbia. And I thought, well, I'll take a biology degree because that's a good way to prepare for medical school. And a lot of the students I have now are doing the same thing. They want to be doctors and they're taking biology um, in pursuit of a medical degree. So the first couple of years didn't go so well. I wasn't really that happy with it because it sort of seemed memorization intensive. And But I kind of turned a corner halfway through because I got involved with a research project with a professor at UBC. And all of those old feelings that, that I'd had about doing science and how exciting science was, that all came back. And I was enjoying the process so much, I decided that I didn't want to go to medical school. So I stayed on to do a PhD um, in the same lab that I'd been doing my undergrad uh, research in. And I was having a great time. I loved it. All the way along, though, I was still rejecting evolution. So sometimes my students are shocked to hear that I say, you know, I went all the way through my bachelor's and I went all the way through my PhD in genetics and cell biology, rejecting evolution. And I basically just compartmentalized it. Like people, I'd hear profs talk about it and I just kind of like, eh, just kind of ignore it. And the area that I was working in didn't really require me to have a deep understanding of how evolution worked. Now, I would have got more out of it if I had applied evolutionary principles to it, but I was able to get through and do a good job sort of in my little area of cell biology without recourse to too much evolutionary theory, which I could kind of just compartmentalize. So, But, but, that, uh, but you understood evolutionary theory at the time? Yeah, sort of. Not okay. really. Uh, it was kind of too bad. My Yeah, my education kind of, I mean, part of it's me, kind of every time it comes up, I kind of just ignore it or kind of say, well, that's their idea, but it's not true. And part of it is the fact that my area, because biology is such a big area that if you're going to specialize in cell and developmental biology, it's possible if, if you sort of put those blinders on that I had on, it's possible to kind of go through that and not really seriously think about the evolution side of the equation. Wow. wow. Yeah. You also have to remember that I did my PhD in the pre-genomics era, really. Okay. So, like, my PhD is, like, right when genomics is starting to get rolling. So, it's kind of, like, we had the Human Genome Project, which was underway at that time, but it wasn't completed, for example. So, you finished your PhD, and what, what, kind of, um, what kind of shook you into thinking more positively about, um, about evolution? Yeah. 
So I had kind of thought that I would be, um, now that I was working on my PhD, I thought, well, you know, maybe I'll be that professor at, you know, a secular university who's a Christian who can help his students, you know, navigate these issues. And I'm still thinking in an, in an anti-evolutionary way, I guess, at this point. But interestingly enough, I ended up, um, through a series of circumstances, hearing about and then applying for a job out here at Trinity Western. Now, Trinity Western is an evangelical um, CCCU school. And I hadn't really thought that that was going to be my career path, but it seemed like the Lord was leading in this area. And I thought, okay, well, you know, I can help students here and there's going to be non-Christian students here that are going to be coming through. So, you know, this could be what the ministry that, <clears throat> excuse me, this could be the ministry that God has for me here. So I took the job out here and for the first couple of years, I taught anti-evolution in my classes, which students now, you know, from that era, they're kind of surprised. It's like, wow, what happened to Dr. Venema? But early on in those classes, I taught from an intelligent design perspective. So an anti-evolutionary intelligent design perspective. And I had um, a faculty member who's a colleague here who holds to that position. I had him come into my classes as a guest lecturer so that he could do a better job of explaining intelligent design than I could. So that was for the first couple of years here at Trinity Western. And then there came this opportunity to contribute um, a chapter to an edited book. And this edited book was uh, a series where different faculty would take their discipline and talk about it in relation to Christianity. So that the book has sort of like chemistry and Christianity, you know, physics and Christianity, you know, the arts and Christianity. Yeah. Yeah. And so I was invited to revise this chapter that was on biology. And I thought, oh, this is a good, easy way for me to, to get a publication. And it's, you know, it talks about Christian faith. So that'll be good for tenure and promotion. <laughs> so I kind of, I, I kind of naively went into this project thinking it's a it's an easy easy publication. But I thought, you know, I don't really know that much about this area, so I need to do some work. And it was in the process of that research for that article that I completely changed my views. And I actually started with um, the intelligent design stuff. And it was, a, I, I tell you, Scott, it was just incredible. I had been a huge fan of Michael Behe, who's an intelligent design biochemist. Yep. Yeah, I had read his book, Darwin's Black Box, in the mid-90s as a grad student, a brand new grad student, so I'm just out of my undergrad, and I thought, wow, this is brilliant. Of course, he demolishes evolution. We just, you know, stuff just can't come together like this, you know. He's got irreducible complexity in these ideas, and I thought they were great. So, B, he had a new book out. It's called The Edge of Evolution, and um, it was brand new book at that time when I was doing this article, so I thought, hey, this is great. I'll just start there. So, I picked up that book. And I tell you, I wish I had a video camera as I was reading this thing, because now I'm reading this not as, you know, a brand new grad student. I'm reading this as somebody who's trained in the field and I'm I'm seeing holes everywhere and the argument just doesn't hold up. And I'm like, what is this? This is, you know, this isn't what I remembered. And I honestly, I, I before I looked at the evidence for evolution I had ditched ID by the time I was done with that book, just because I could see that the arguments didn't hold up. And I, I talk about in, in Adam and the Genome, I have a section, a chapter on intelligent design. And one of the people I, you know, one of the arguments I deal with is Behe's irreducible complexity argument. And you'll see why 
it wasn't convincing to me in the book. But anyway, by the time I had put that book down, I was like, well, okay, that's that. I'm done with ID. And then the next paper I pick up sort of in my stack of reading for that research article is the uh, Nature paper from 2005, which is the full genome sequence of chimpanzees as it's compared to the human genome. So I read through that, and it took me about 10 minutes. And I remember putting the paper down on my desk in my office, and it's quiet. And I say, well, that's that then, right? It's just like, because the evidence is so compelling, and I was able to understand it all because obviously I'm a geneticist and a genomicist. Now I had done my PhD research on fruit flies because that's my model organism of choice, but DNA is DNA. It's like if you're, if you're actually one thing that I sometimes use as an analogy and your listeners might um, appreciate this especially is it's very similar to textual criticism. So if you're familiar with how you compare texts from the ancient world to one another and you say, okay, this text has this copying error and then we see that same error propagated in this mm -hmm. group of texts mm -hmm. that tells us that it's a descendant of those texts it's very much the same sort of idea mm -hmm. and i talk about this in the book too so uh, the readers will have an ability to sort of see how that evidence works but i was so struck by the the overwhelming evidence in that paper and obviously that's just one piece of evidence for evolution but it changed it changed my viewpoint right then and there now I knew enough at that time that there were Christians out there that accepted evolution. I'd heard about Francis Collins, and I'd heard about um, his book, The Language of God. So that was kind of the next one on my reading list. But I had already made up my mind that this was the way to go scientifically, even if I didn't know how theologically I was going to put the pieces together. Well, Dennis, that's quite a story. I, I didn't know all those little details, but, he, you know, um, we're, we can't go on forever here. But I wonder, um, you know, maybe we'll we'll have to get you back on here. But I wonder if you could uh, tell us uh, what happened to you when you made your views more public, let's say, in your family, in your friends, at your church, uh, at your school, because it's a Christian school. Yeah. Um, my administration, uh, was supportive, which makes a huge difference, but it was actually, um, a time that was pretty stressful because I was actually pre-tenure at that point. So, you know, if they'd wanted to get rid of me, I guess that would have been a good time to do it. <laughs> <laughs> that's um, right. Sometimes that's what happens. Yeah. Unfortunately, that's sometimes what happens. Yeah. Um, fortunately that wasn't the case, um, here. And the reason for that is there's a realization that um, it's okay to have some diversity on this particular topic, right? Sometimes people hear the word evolution and they think, oh, that means you're not a creationist, right? You don't yeah. believe in creation. And all we're saying here is that we think that God has used this mechanism as a means of creation, which is not the same thing as saying that, you know, God isn't involved in some way or isn't a creator. Now, the church situation wasn't as good. It took a couple of years, but eventually it came to a point where it was pretty clear that uh, we weren't welcome there at that particular oh, congregation, anymore, which is kind of too bad. Although, interestingly enough, um, the issue of women in ministry was what was used um, to get me out at the end. So, <laughs> yeah, I know. it's I know. It's hilarious. But anyway, that's what it was. But I have to say, we're at a congregation now and have been for a number of years that is just I, you know, I didn't think that church could be that good again. I oh, had kind of thought, 
I had kind of thought that maybe I would just kind of have to, you know, muddle through so that our kids could have a good church experience. And I know this is something that a lot of people struggle with when they come to this understanding of, of biology. You know, what do you do with your church community that maybe doesn't see things the same way? But I have to say we're hugely blessed where we are right now. Oh, that's good. Well, Dennis, this is uh, this has been really a good conversation. And I know so many um, of my listener or our listeners on this Kingdom Roots podcast are in touch uh, with people who are struggling with these issues, who themselves are struggling with these issues, who could benefit from the book, but they will benefit as well from your story, knowing how uh, you just sort of one, you know, pretty much in one study in your uh, your own uh, intellectual biography, you said, "Well, that's it. I um, I have to embrace this." I have found that most of my changes over uh, have been over time, sort of slow. I'll be studying something and I'll think, mm-hmm. uh, but it's not something I need to make a decision on. And then all of a sudden I wake up one day and I say, you know, I believe that. And my own uh, study of, I grew up in a world that affirmed probably young earth creation. I, uh, my pastors encouraged me as a, as a teenager to read the Genesis flood. Uh, our public school teachers were mostly Christian who didn't press evolution hard. It was a part of public education, but it wasn't something we had to fight about. Uh, I remember just some conversations, but I was more interested in German class. So let the scientists fight about science. But it was in reading a book uh, um, by a guy named Dennis Thurman that, that opened my eyes to some broader perspectives and then um, it was in, co- in conversation on the blog, watching RJS do her posts and talk about things. And I'd read things. And then she talked about these articles. And I thought, I, I've got to study this more, at least to where I feel more confident about what I suspect to be true, namely evolution. And it, it just, to me, it, it dawned over time. And then I, you know, I, I would say, yes, I believe in evolution. But you are absolutely right. Many people say, well, if you believe in evolution, then you're an atheist or you're a materialist or you don't believe in creation. But but uh, that evolution occurred is scientifically demonstrable. What created what generated it, uh, how it was guided and all that sort of thing is simply outside the purview of scientific evidence. And this is where I think Christians have something to contribute to um, how we perceive what 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 scientific evidence is saying. So for me, uh, it it gave me the freedom once again to examine the Bible with fresh eyes, and I'm grateful for science, and I'm particularly grateful for that article you wrote about genomics uh, that uh, opened my eyes even further. And uh, you know, I didn't understand it all. I don't remember all the terms like alleles, but um, the overall conclusion was compelling enough to me that I had to I had to rethink some of the way I was thinking about Genesis one as well. So uh, I want to thank you for uh, taking time out of your schedule to join us, and I want to encourage our audience to know that the the book that Dennis and I have written uh, by Dennis Venema and Scott McKnight is called Adam and the Genome, and uh, Dennis gives a very accessible introduction to scientific theories. And then I try to discuss uh, what Adam was like in the Bible, the Jewish world, 
and in the New Testament, especially in Romans chapter 5. So I want to thank you, Dennis, for your time uh, with us. Great. Thanks, Scott. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for joining us today. Man, I hope you enjoyed that conversation between Dennis and Scott. I know I, I found it insightful to hear more of Dennis's story and what brought him to the decisions and conclusions that he has made, um, both personally and uh, scientifically in his study. So I want to just encourage you um, once again to take the opportunity to either pre-order or um, if you're listening to this later, uh, to grab Scott and Dennis's book. Uh, it'll be a great resource for you as you can to investigate this, and we hope you continue to join us next time as we continue our conversation on how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now.